would take your Bibles, and again, we are departing from Mark. As I mentioned in email, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 6. John, do I need to turn on my, or are you recording through this? Okay, I'll just use the mic. Matthew chapter 6, and we'll begin reading at verse 25. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his status? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. With the increasing of the coronavirus, many believers across the United States are wondering how should we respond to this increasing alarm? What would God have us do in the face of this growing international crisis? Do we go to work? Do we go to the store? Should we close our church doors for the fear of spreading the illness? Should we let our children play with other children? Should we cancel our travel plans? How should we act in a fearful world? Well, our first action, of course, should be what? To go to God. We know that. But not only do we go to God, but we believe the truth that God has given us in Scripture. We know that God is in control. Therefore, worry is not our friend. We are not to panic. Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 24.10, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. May it never be said that God's people are governed more by fear than faith. God has promised never to give his people more than they can handle. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. So during these days, we need to be faithful. Faithful examples to others. We need to make sure that we are used of God to reveal to others that we truly believe in God's sovereignty in His mercy, in His grace. We need to make sure that 
we are used of him to bring glory to his name so that we might persevere in the faith to be his witnesses. Now, while we remain on alert against these viruses, we must remember that worrying won't change anything. It won't change our circumstances or lower the chance of infection. Worrying won't help us fight off any illness whatsoever. Studies, matter of fact, show that a person that worries only increases his troubles physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Rather than worrying or or being anxious, Jesus calls us to respond with prayer and faith in him. And ultimately, we need not worry because we know the one who has defeated sin and death. Now next, we must look to God in prayer and we must trust him. For he is the only one that is able to sustain us during times such as this. The government cannot sustain us. Our families cannot sustain us. The church cannot sustain you. The only one that can sustain you is Christ himself. And God calls us to trust in him at all times and in all things. Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. What a wonderful truth that is, that God's a refuge for us during such times as this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Psalms 37, 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And we could read verse after verse after verse that speaks of trusting in the Lord and how faithful the Lord is to his people. We all know that worrying is very common. All of us in this room have worried at one time or another, some more so than others. But we all are worriers. And God has called us to face all trouble and threats with courage and to lean upon Him, to trust in Him. Now this is not the first crisis that has ever come to His people. And it won't be the last. Christians have often stood faithfully in the face of all troubles and threats, in the face of all plagues and persecutions and pandemics. Christians have remained faithful throughout history by showing their love for God and for people. And they weren't afraid of death because they knew To live is Christ and to die is gain. By personally involving ourselves in the mess of sickness and sin, Christians were able to demonstrate their faith to a watching world, wondering how would they respond to such a crisis as this. They're watching, they're watching you and they're watching me to see how we respond to this virus. So rather than asking, how do I stay healthy? Maybe we should consider asking, how can I help those in need? How can I help those who are sick? Let me be quick to help and slow to hide in my own house. We must fall into the steps of our Lord, who was willing to step into this sinful, sin-sick, death world and reach out to those in need, and He calls us to do likewise. What better way to enter into heaven than in a loving service to others.
as our Lord did. We aren't to be reckless with our lives. I'm not saying that. We're not to take careless risk. As you have gathered this morning, you have not taken careless risk. You have done exactly what we have asked you to do. You have followed the guidelines to avoid any kind of contact with this virus. But we see that we are also to be faithful. And we are not to do anything in any way to intentionally infect ourselves. But when duty calls, are we not to answer? I think of my own mother. There she is in a senior citizen home, and we know what has happened in the most senior citizen home where the virus has entered. And I thank the Lord that it has not entered where she lives. But if it does, what will I do? I will seek to minister to my mother. I will seek to minister to my neighbors, my elderly neighbors that I have mentioned to you before, because that is our duty as Christians. Now, I will take all precautions that I can, but it will not keep me from ministering to them because that's what God has called me to do as a pastor, but also it, he has called all of us Christians to serve others and love others and minister to them. Ultimately, we have nothing to fear as Christians. We must remember again to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Therefore, you and I are immortal till God says life is over. We're invincible until God says today is the day that you will go to glory. Until He has finished with us on this world, we can take great confidence in knowing that He will protect us and watch over us as we go through this world and seek to do that which He has called us to do. Now that's my introduction to this passage. These words Jesus speaks to us are very challenging, but they're also very comforting. This passage is one of those passages that should be read over and over again to remind us of these wonderful truths that He has for us. So that we have comfort that comes from the Lord during times of anxiety, during times of worry. We know that all Scripture is inspired by God, but some passages are more beneficial to our spiritual health than other passages. We know that. And this is one of those passages that is more beneficial to us, especially when we face uncertain times and difficulties as we are facing today. Anxiety is a problem that we all are familiar with. As I've already mentioned, some of us have more anxiety than others. And that's due to different situations. Sometimes we worry more if our parents worried more. Mine seemed to be just the opposite. My dad worried a lot. And because of that, I think I go to the other extreme, not worrying enough. I don't know. I don't understand why we respond different to things such as this as far as anxiety. But we have to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage. He is speaking to believers. Because he says there in verse 30c, Oh, you of little faith. He's talking to the believers. And what is he saying to the believers? He said, you have little faith. See, unbelievers have no faith. So that's why we know he's talking to believers. And he's talking to us. See, it's better to have little faith than no faith. We hold on to that little faith and we pray like the disciples, strengthen our faith, Lord. So he's talking to true disciples and seeking to teach them the importance of knowing how to handle difficulties, knowing how to handle problems when they arise so that they are witnesses, his witnesses to a sovereignty or to the sovereignty of God and the love of his people. That's our calling, to be his witnesses. 
And therefore, we are to witness to others that we believe that God is a sovereign God, that God is in control of all things, that nothing surprises God, that He's even in control of this mess that is happening now all over the world. And therefore, we are to be witnesses that we believe that our God is still in control. I pray that as we meditate upon the Lord's words, which deal with anxiety and seeking righteousness, that they will be afresh and our souls will be revived so that we might worship God in truth and spirit this morning. First, Jesus gives us a prohibition against anxiety there in verses 25 through 27. When he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or, what, or about your body, what you will put on. If not life more in food and bodies more than clothing, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his status? Now, not only does he mention do not worry in verse 25, but also he mentions it in verse 31 and in verse 34. Three times Jesus gives us this prohibition not to worry. It's a prohibition against anxiety. Jesus is saying that if we are children of God, we have no reason to be filled with anxiety at any point in our life. In other words, It is a sin to be filled with anxiety, to not be trusting the Lord. Listen to what Joel Beakey says. We are not listening to a sermon. Maybe you listened to it last night. I sent it out to you by email so you can listen to it later if you so desire. But in that sermon he says, actually Jesus is saying it is a grave sin an act of wicked unbelief to doubt Christ's love for us if we are truly believers. Now, of course, this raises some questions. Is all worry and anxiety sinful? Of course, to find the answer to that question, we must go to God's Word. We must not believe like Doris Day. Some of y'all may remember Doris Day. You might be old enough. Quay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. We're not to be like that. We are not fatalists. Fatalism teaches that since the past, the present, and the future events have already been predestined or predetermined, we're totally helpless to do anything about those events. Fatalism should not be confused with predestination. Fatalism asserts an abstract necessity without regards to casual antecedents and thus is diametrically opposed to predestination. We need to remember that right there. In which cause, effect, ends, and means are predetermined in relationship to one another. The use of means is rendered futile in fatalism, but not by predestination. We know that God uses means to accomplish His purpose. Scripture teaches that we are to have godly concerns. We are to prepare for the future. If a child goes astray, should we not be concerned about him or her? In other words, there is different kinds of worrying. Maybe a better word would be being concerned. We are to be concerned, and that is not sinful. Matter of fact, it's it's encouraged that we are to be concerned. What Jesus Christ is condemning is a distrust or an inordinate concern that loses sight 
of what God has said in Scripture. And doing such presents a bad testimony to the world. For it's not acting like Christ, but it's acting, as we see in this passage, like the Gentiles. In other words, acting like the world. And we are not to act like the world. We are not to behave like the world. We are not to worry like the world. Because the world acts as if there is no God, which is surely sinful. Now this is one of the reasons Jesus uses such strong language in this passage. He is are not to worry, that it is futile for Christians to worry. And it reveals their lack of faith. Now, a better translation of verse 25 is, do not be anxious about your life. Jesus is talking about anxiety. He's not talking about thoughtlessness, being absent-minded. I mean, one who gives no thought to the necessities of life. We are not to be careless in our life and depend upon others to be generous so that we might live in this world. The Bible clearly teaches that we are to be faithful in providing for our family, to be concerned about their needs. And if we don't do such, Paul has some very strong words for such a person there in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. I mean, there was a group of people there in 2 Thessalonians who had rapture fever. They were ready for the rapture. They were ready to be out of this world. And what did he say to them? Because they'd quit working. He said, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Our government needs to take that verse and use it and apply it. Now, I'm not saying that those people that cannot work, I'm saying those that are capable of working are to work or they don't eat. You want to motivate a person to work? Don't let him eat. And I guarantee you, he'll be motivated to work. Our government is doing people wrong when they feed them when they're unwilling to work and are capable of working. Now, neither is Jesus condemning financial planning. The Bible teaches us to give real thought about the future, to store up the finances that we need for the future. And he uses there in Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, an example of the ant. I'm not going to go to the passage. You can look up for yourself later. But in Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, he says, watch the ant and watch how he stores up for the future, how he stores up for the winter. I wish they weren't able to do that. That way we wouldn't have to worry about them in the spring, but they are. They're very diligent. They're storing up. And, and there's trillions of those things. And just in my yard, not counting your yard, they're everywhere. And they're very aggressive. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what the scripture is saying. That's what Proverbs, Solomon is saying in Proverbs, that we are to follow their example. Now, the Bible commands us to pay close attention to our daily work. In Proverbs 27, Proverbs 27, 23 through 27, he says, Be diligent to know the state of your flock and attend to your herd, for the rich are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the hay is removed, the tender grass shows itself. The herbs of the mountains are gathered. The lambs will provide your clothes and the goats the price of the field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food and the food of your household and the nourishment of the handmaid. So again, it's talking about being diligent, working the farm, taking care of the animals. They will provide the food for you. Paying close attention doesn't mean that you are worrying. Jesus is pointing out that we must not be preoccupied with such thoughts that consume us to the point of fear. I mean, we are not to be preoccupied with the necessity of food and clothes and shelter so that we become paralyzed with worry. 
We are seeing that in our world now. When we see the stores that are empty of milk and bread, there's people that are becoming paralyzed over the fear of not having these items and they're stocking them up in their homes for the future. There was a lot of people that did that with Y2K. Remember that? I remember one individual, he bought all these big old barrels of grain for the future. And I guess it all ruined. Now, again, I'm not saying we don't be, we're not to be wise. What I'm saying, we are not to be paralyzed by fear, paralyzed by worry, understanding that God will take care of us. Now, look at what Jesus says there in verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Now, what is his reason for saying this? Well, he tells us, verse 32a, For after all these things the Gentiles seek. So he's saying, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't worry like the Gentiles. We know why this world is consumed with these things. We know why this world is in such a panic today. Because lost man only has a brief little life. And this brief little life consumes him. I mean, this is his life. This world is his life. His home. This is his future. He has no future. So therefore, all that he has is wrapped up in the present. All of his possessions. But we should be completely different. Why? Because we have God as our heavenly Father. And we know that this place is not our home. We know that we're only passing through this place. We know that we are pilgrims. That we have a far better place. You can't even compare the place that we're going to with this place. So therefore, we're not to act like them. Now when our theology doesn't impact our lives... It will bring about anxiety in our life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Especially in times of crisis. And we begin to act like the world. If we fail to think through the implications that we say that we believe as far as theology is concerned. We say that we believe that God is sovereign and that He is our Father and that He loves us. But there are times that we fail to think upon the implications of these truths. Again, usually when something like this happens, when a crisis comes. I mean, most of us are never guilty of being too theological. Sometimes people may accuse you of that, but folks, you are never too theological. I'm never too theological. But we can be guilty of not being theological enough. And sometimes we don't think enough about who God is and what God is capable of. You understand what I'm talking about? There's many times that happens. Again, during times like this, we forget who God is and what God is capable of. Let me ask you a question. Why didn't Jesus ever worry? We know Jesus never worried. So why did he never worry? Because he was constantly filled with thoughts about his heavenly father, who his heavenly father was and what his father was capable of. He knew him. He knew who he was. He knew what he could do. And therefore, Jesus calls us to be like him. What is he saying there? To think about God. To be Christ-minded. As Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That should be our desire. That should be our prayer. Lord, let this mind be in me, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
So that's a prohibition. Second, and there's only two points, Jesus gives us the cure for anxiety. Now that's one of the cures for it, one I just mentioned, let this mind be in you. If that mind is in you, then therefore that's the cure of anxiety. But there's three truths that I want you to look at that we need to think about in these verses. We must think properly about our life. Again, going back to verse 25 and what he says there. When he says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you eat, what you will drink, nor about your body and what you put on. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? Now Jesus is arguing here. He's presenting an argument. And he's arguing here in this verse from the greater to the lesser. And he's simply stating rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is? The answer will be yes. He knows the answer will be yes to every one of these questions that he asks. It's What he's doing here is kind of like what we used to do years ago. If you were in a science class... They had a little scale to weigh things. I don't think they do that anymore in school. But you had a little scale. We used to love to play with those and always got in trouble with the teacher. You're not supposed to play with that. You're supposed to use it for the experiment. But anyway, we played with it. But that's what he's He's given us a scale here. He's given us a weigh scale. And he's saying, put on one side your life. And then put on the other side your food. What happens? No comparison, see? Your life is so much more valuable than your food. You can't even compare the two. And then he says, the next thing, put your body on one side and put your clothes. Again, what happens? The weight scale goes down and pops up. There's no comparison again. Now think about who gave you this precious gift of life. Did it not come from God? Didn't God knit your body together in your mother's womb? And are you not more valuable to God than these other things? See, if God has given us the bigger gift, surely He's going to give us the smaller gift, right? Why would He withhold the smaller gift if He's given us the biggest gift? And of course, the answer again is rhetorical. He's not. He's going to give us the smaller gift. He's going to give us food. He's going to give us clothing. Now, there are those who have shown lack of faith. As I've already mentioned, they've shown lack of faith by doing what? Not buying reasonably, but buying for months ahead. Getting as much bread as they could and and toilet paper, as the joke's been on the internet. And I, I thought it was funny, I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, this disclaimer that says, we will not take these items in return. <laughs> when I was toilet paper, I don't know if that's the case or not. But what, you see what I'm saying? People go to the extreme. In other words, they're not going to trust the Lord to take care of them. They're, they're, they're threatening, they're, they're nervous, they're, they're filled with anxiety, thinking that those things will not be out there next month. And they're unable to trust their Heavenly Father. Jesus next states that anxiety is due to us not thinking biblically about our Heavenly Father in heaven. There in verse 26. When he says, look at the birds of the air. For they sow, nor reap, nor gather in barns. Yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than them? Now the argument that Jesus is giving goes not from your greater to your lesser, but your lesser to your greater. He's taking the lesser. He's taking a bird here. Now, both illustrations remind us that this is our Father's world. I mean, look all around us and and what do you see? All creation reveals... That this is his world. That he's in control of this world. And creation preaches to us. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you will receive truth. 
John Stott, who, who used to years ago write for the Claren Ledger and put a religious article in there. I think he was too biblical and eventually they got rid of him. But he, he's a bird watcher. He loved to observe birds. Matter of fact, he would take his vacation and go simply to watch birds and learn from birds. And of course, we can also learn from them. I'm not going to take a vacation to go watch them as he did, but we can learn from birds. And in verse 26, Jesus speaks about birds and how God cares for them. Now, of course, the point isn't that we are to act like birds as far as food is concerned. No, for God has appointed us to do what? He's appointed us to do the tilling, the plowing, the planting, and the reaping. The point is that birds, they don't do any of that, but yet they're still industrious. They diligently seek to find food in nature. But the major point is that if God has provided for the birds... And they're almost like ants. Trillions of them. I don't know how many birds there are. I don't know if anybody knows how many birds there are. But I mean, and you know, coming springtime, you're going to see the flock of blackbirds. I mean, sometimes there's so many, the sky keeps the sun from... I mean, the birds, as they fly together, you can't hardly see the sun. It darkens the day sometimes. There's trillions of them. And the scripture tells us That God feeds them. God takes care of them. And therefore, if he provides for them, will he not provide for his children? John Stott writes this little poem. I don't know where he found it. I don't know where it came from. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious, anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the robin, or said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. And John Scott says, actually, However, the Lord doesn't say that the birds have a heavenly father, but that you do. And it is your heavenly father who feeds the birds. That's the point. If your father in heaven takes such care of the lesser creatures, how much more will he provide for his own children? It's kind of like this. If you have a dog and your mother goes to the store, she'll pick up dog food if the dog needs dog food, right? I guarantee it, if your mother picks up dog food for the dog, she's not going to forget about you and say, well, I need to feed that dog. But my children now, now, you know, let them starve. Now, there may be some people like that, but they're not in their right mind. A mother that has common sense and a mother that loves her family, even though she feeds the dog, much more important to her are who? Her family, her her children, and she's going to take care of her children. So you see the comparison, and that's what Jesus is saying here. He's making this comparison here. You do not need to worry about your mother Not picking you up food if she picks up the dog food. She will most definitely pick you up food as well. Now the next comparison that Jesus uses is the grass of the field. And and how God clothes the grass of the field with such wildflowers there in verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Now at this time... People didn't have a lot of clothing. They might have had two sets of clothing. They wore one while the other one was in the wash. They didn't have closets. You know, in the Palestinian home, there was one big room. There was no closet. So in other words, you didn't have anywhere to put put clothes. You know, 
might need to start building houses without clothes and we might not buy so much. Just a suggestion there. But anyway, that's how it was in the Palestinian day. Now, now of course, Solomon was an exception. He was king. He probably had closets. He had his closets probably filled with all these splendid clothes. Beautiful clothes. Top of the line clothes. But even his did not compare to God's creation. Even his most fashionable clothes could not hold a candle to God's creation. But what does Jesus say about the grass of the field, the lilies of the fields, these things in the field? He says, today it is, tomorrow it is thrown into the oven. He's speaking about certain kinds of grass that they used for cooking, placing in the oven. So this is his argument. If God clothed the grass with such stunningness, but it's of so little value, then will he not clothe his children who mean so much to him? Notice it says, will he not much more clothe you? Much more. An emphasis there that he will take care of his children. Now finally, Jesus points out how unproductive anxiety is in verse 27. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his status? Now, this particular verse here can be translated in two different ways. But both come to the same conclusion. The NIV, as I just read says, by worrying can add one cubit to his status. The ESV says, by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life. Now, cubit is six, uh, 18 inches. So I would elect to take the other translation. Uh, short period of time appears to be the best. And it appears that Jesus is saying, who can add a single hour, a single minute to his life. Now today, man is consumed with seeking to live longer, is he not? I mean, man does just about everything so that he might live longer. He watches his cholesterol. He works out. He eats vitamins. He goes to health food club. He eats right, he walks, he may even have surgery. On and on I could go to try to extend his life. But does any individual that does all of those things add one single minute to his life? No. Because God has already numbered our days. But how we live those days hopefully will be healthier if we do those things that I just mentioned. We are to be good stewards of our body. But Jesus is pointing out that anxiety, that worrying cannot add a single moment to our lives. It accomplishes nothing good for us. Some have exercised all their lives. Some have done all, everything in their will to extend their life. They, they may even run a marathon and then drop dead at the age of 40 of a heart attack. Or be hit by another car and killed in an automobile accident. And then on the other side, you may have some guy who smokes and eats bad foods and drinks and doesn't take care of his body. He's a couch potato and he lives to be 90. And you scratch your head and you wonder what in the world is going on. Now what we must keep in mind is that our life is in the hands of God. As I've mentioned, He has numbered our day. He's appointed the day that you would be born and He has appointed the day that you would die. And nothing can change that. Neither 
any of these things that I mentioned. I remember when my dad had his stroke and he was up here in Jackson and he was in the rehab and uh, Methodist rehab and the doctor came in to talk with the family and he said, I give your dad maybe four years with the kind of stroke that he's had. He lived eight years. I mean, this doctor had seen numerous stroke patients and he said with that stroke, he may live four years. Well, that's not what God had in store for him. God had eight years. Even though he was bedridden all those eight years, God still had his days numbered to where he lived much longer than the doctor thought he would. Now, if Jesus stood here at this pulpit this morning and he looked at you eyeball to eyeball, And he asked, or made the statement, do not worry. What would you do? I hope you would say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Why? Because he just finished telling us that our Heavenly Father knows what you need. Jesus told us that. Not your pastor. Those are the words of Jesus. Jesus says he knows what you need. So what we must realize is that prayer is the antidote for worry and anxiety. He doesn't say forget about all of those things, but what? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. See, we are to speak to God about our needs. He cares for us more than we can realize it. He doesn't say forget about all those other things, but He says what? He says, seek God. Seek His kingdom. Seek righteousness. Now Paul tells us the same thing in Philippians 4, 6. He says, do or be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So what are we to be anxious for? Nothing. We're to go to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and let our request be known to Him. Now here's the principle. If you seek God first in His kingdom and His righteousness, the rest will be taken care of. Do you understand that? If we're seeking God and we're seeking righteousness, then the rest will be taken care of. Our main purpose as Christians is to seek the kingdom of God. That is the Christian's main business. When do you start doing that? When do you start seeking? What's that? Conversion. Let me, let me tell you something, folks. There's nothing... Or there's no such thing as seeker-friendly people. There's no such thing. Even though churches promote it and they say, well, we're a friendly seeker church. There's no such thing as a seeker-friendly people. Because lost people do not seek God. Scripture plainly tells us that lost man doesn't seek God. He's at enmity with God. He shakes his fist in the face of God. He does not seek God. And we have to remember that. It's when God changes the heart, when He becomes a new creation, that's when He begins to seek God. Our entire life from that point forward is a quest for God and His righteousness. Therefore, if you are seeking, then 
you will not be worrying about tomorrow. Jesus isn't saying we are to be reckless, but seeking to do those things which we are called to do. But not with an anxious heart. If we are seeking God's kingdom and we are seeking His righteousness first, anxiety will be eliminated. Let me repeat that. If we are seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness first, anxiety will be eliminated. Listen to what one pastor said. Jesus teaches that our Heavenly Father will provide us with all that we need, even the smallest details, so we can trust Him. Jesus is teaching that God's providence is all-inclusive, This is not just a general knowledge that God is sovereign, but it is a sovereignty that extends to the finest detail. Do you understand that? That His sovereignty and His providence extends to the smallest, the finest detail. And when we understand God's sovereignty, you come to see that He loves you very, very much. He loves you more than you can comprehend. And that's why Paul says God works all things after the counsel of His own will for His own glory. Even the color of the lilies of the field revealed this wonderful truth. And we are told that God in His providence is working all things out for our good. But we can only know that if we are His children. The for our good is for His children, called according to His purpose. Only those who are reconciled to Him through Christ, only those that know Christ, only those who have been changed by grace know Him and are in line to what is saying here, For our good. And his children must understand God's fatherly love for us. And when we understand God's fatherly love for us, we are able to proclaim to this world at all times, but especially in times of crisis, Revealing to others that He is a God that can be trusted because we trust Him. And we love Him because He first loved us. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for these wonderful truths that are recorded in Matthew chapter 6 the words of our Lord that are given to us so that we might be your witnesses. Witnesses of your sovereignty, witnesses of your providence in our life. We thank you for these wonderful truths, Father, that give us great comfort and great hope in days like today. And we pray, Father, that we would go from this place this day to convey these truths to others so that they may come to know the true and living God in their life by knowing Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and for his glory. Amen.